and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. This is Half an Hour of Science on your radio. My name is Claire and looking forward to having you for the next 30 minutes. On the show today, I'm going to be talking about a bit of a paradigm shift. It's a biological paradigm shift. It's very exciting research that has just been released that throws upside down everything we knew about uh, the little parts of the cell called the mitochondria. And the mitochondria has DNA in it. And we thought one thing about it, but really, uh, that's not the case. Has it turned it upside down or has it thrown it into a loop or into a spiral? Into Um, a double helix? Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess it's turned (laughs) it into a double helix. That's a good way to look at it. Stew, what do you have for us today? Well, I've often pondered the philosophical question of, if the wind blows on another planet and there's no one around to hear, does it make a sound? <laughs> Which is a well-known philosophical question that yes. we've, all, mm. we've all stumbled across. Well, we have an answer now. Um, we? We've actually had an answer for a while. It's, pretty, it's a pretty obvious answer. If the wind blows on Jupiter, do we hear it? Think, if the I wind think Jupiter's blows just wind, on though, isn't it? Neptune, it's just do gases. We? And, but uh, we, have got, we have actually got sound recordings from other planets. We can actually hear what's going on on other worlds wow. right now. Whoa. Are you, are you going to play some of them for yes, us? Yes, I am going to play them. That is excellent yeah. news. And Chris? Um, I'm talking about, I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about that thing, you know, that, um, you know, when you are, you, you know, when you, when you know the name, you think you know the name of something, but you can't quite. When you it's know right, a word, it's, yeah, the, it's right on there. The, when the tip of your the, tongue. That's it, Claire. The tip of the tongue. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. Things what? being on the tip of your tongue. And the science behind the tip yeah, things yeah. being on the tip of your tongue. I've always... Is it literally on the tip of your tongue? It's not, is it? There's not a little word on the tip of your tongue. How are you talking about that? Yeah, well, it's interesting that because most uh, many cultures have that similar expression, I guess, on the tip of your tongue and variations of that. It is kind of, it feels like it is there actually on your tongue. But no, I'm talking about the, trying to work out what's going on with that and when you can't quite remember something, but you know you know it, and how see how you can't, you just can't dig it out of your memory hole. But then a little bit later, suddenly it just pops up. It does. No way. Yes. When you least expect it. Yeah, I've always wondered about this, and I am looking into what the science says about it. Oh, that that is very exciting. Mm. Uh, what's that word? Uh, uh, um, on with the show. So remember back to Year 10 science when you were learning about cells? Yes. Do you remember it well? Animal cells, plant cells? I remember teaching people about it much more recently oh, than that. of course, <laughs> do you? Well, Chris, the non-biologist. Yes. Do you remember, no, remember in the nucleus, you've got the nuclear DNA that codes for what we look like, how we act, what we're made up of. Um, but there's the mitochondria as well. They're like the powerhouses of the cell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The- they also have DNA, right? Yeah, because they're like, aren't they kind of like bacteria that were captured by our cells? Yeah, well, you don't yeah. learn that in year 10. Or maybe you do. I think that's actually, well, certainly when I was in year 10, that's Endosymbiosis. Sort of, yeah, endosymbiosis is a more recent theory than okay. when I was in year 10, I believe. Yeah. And they're not the same as midi-chlorians. Can we they're just not the same as midi 
millions okay. for all those people out there no. who were who were trying who were, to forget what, that. Who were yeah, trying to forget sorry. the first Star Wars. Thanks for bringing that back. Anyway, um, so the mitochondria, it does have DNA. It's got a very special kind of DNA. It's called mitochondrial DNA. Um, and it's very different because it's only inherited from your maternal line. So from your mother and in your mother's DNA, mitochondrial DNA is from her mother and so on and so forth without any... Why is that? Would you like to explain why that is? Well, I will explain it. Um, there's, there's, uh, there's not a lot of research into what exactly is going on, but it's something, yeah, I will explain okay. it in a little while. Yeah. Um, so just hold that thought. Um, and anyway, if you've got one line of maternal DNA, it's really handy um, if you want to look at how um, species have evolved over time because the DNA... If you get it from your mother and your father, which what is what happens with your nuclear DNA, it's recombining all the time. It gets all mixed up. It gets all mixed up, exactly. Um, but with the maternal DNA, it's exactly the same from generation to generation unless there's a mutation. And then you can trace um, how long populations have been you know, distant from each other mm-hmm. through those mutations. But... Over the last couple of weeks, we've had a full paradigm shift and the whole idea of maternally passed along mitochondrial DNA, which is written in every textbook, every biology textbook, um, may not actually be the case in all cases. So not... In all species or in all... In humans. In humans, wow. Yes, yes. So a team from Cincinnati Children's Hospital have published evidence that shows that mitochondrial DNA can come from your mother and your father in some cases. So totally flipping this this rule, which is mitochondrial DNA only comes from your mother. Totally flipping that on its head. Um, So the research was published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and they present evidence of two parent inheritance of mitochondrial DNA. So two parents uh, giving the mitochondrial DNA. Um, in 17 people. Um, so they've looked at it in 17 people, found the evidence, 17 people's mitochondrial DNA has is, comes from both their parents. Um, and this isn't just in one family. It comes from three different unrelated families and they're all from different generations in within those families as well. Um, and so the finding came about sort of interestingly Happened when a four-year-old boy arrived at the hospital. Um, He had some muscle pain. He was very weak. And after some tests, the doctors are like, oh, maybe it's a mitochondrial DNA. Maybe it's a mitochondrial disease. Um, So they decided to sequence his mitochondrial DNA, uh, which is commonplace now because you can can sequence DNA very easily in hospitals. Yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to do and target it like that too. You can figure out which is the mitochondrial DNA compared to the nuclear DNA and you can just multiply that up and then see what's there. Exactly. Yeah. If you're out there and you've done a, um, a DNA test, you know, one of those swab tests, then they've taken your mitochondrial DNA and they've sequenced it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so they're expecting – what they were expecting to find uh, were mutations in the mitochondrial DNA uh, – that could be giving him a disease. They didn't find any mutations in the mitochondrial disease in the mitochondrial DNA. That was totally fine. But what they did find was that the boy had mitochondrial DNA not only from his mother but also from his father. Um, so obviously they did uh, the scientific equivalent of a double take. Um, they sequenced his mitochondrial DNA again. 
and that of his family, everyone in his family, um, and found that, yes, the, ori- the original results were correct and that there were at least four other people in his family in different generations that had a significant level of um, DNA from their mum and their dad. Anyway, so to go back to your question about why we only have um, our mother's mitochondrial DNA, it, it doesn't seem like science is totally clear, um, but there is some indication that um, sperm cells have a gene that triggers the destruction of paternal of the paternal mitochondrial DNA oh, okay. when fertilization occurs. Because I guess they would have to have their own mitochondria because they do that kind of swimming along, so they have to have like energy going on to do that. Yep. They, yeah. So there is mitochondria in the sperm cell, but there's some sort of like self-destruct mechanism that happens on fertilization. So okay. only the, um, the mitochondrial DNA of the um, female egg um, remains intact upon fertilization. Um, but obviously something's happened... And, you know, in very select cases, Hmm. there is this transference of paternal mitochondrial DNA. Um, So, yeah, it isn't just this one family. The researchers um, looked at other uh, patients who had suspected mitochondrial disorders and found a 35-year-old male, 46-year-old female um, to have... Um, different uh, percentages of their mother's and their father's mitochondrial DNA. So between 24 and 76%. So it wasn't even 50-50. It was very varying wow. amounts. Now, they, they they can't yet say what's going on, um, why the paternal mitochondrial DNA isn't being destroyed in some individuals. Um and, but at the same time, the authors don't want to get people too overexcited. Um, <laughs> this is too late. <laughs> Claire's right? just said you have to rewrite all the textbooks. <laughs> the, the, bi- the biologists are going crazy, crazy out there. Crazy! Oh my god. Um, yeah, you know, especially when thinking about the implications of what this means for evolutionary biology. I mean, that was my first thought. I was like, oh, the evolutionary biologist, what does this mean? Does this mean we can't, you know, think about mitochondrial DNA as, you know, one, like a way of showing um, uh, evolutionary relatedness or something like that? Yeah, it, all it, those researchers tearing up their papers. It probably Totally, yeah. It probably does have more of an effect on those sort of genealogical kind of interpretations more than more than evolution as a thing, just us being able to measure it because that was a standard sort of ticking clock that we yeah. always thought was there, but now it's yeah. obviously not. As well, the, I mean, the researchers are saying that maternal inheritance remains still absolutely dominant on an evolutionary timescale. Um, but yeah, I mean, it throws into question a lot of, a lot of things. Um, and even, yeah, so, um, the occasional paternal transmission, um, hopefully hasn't left too much of a mark on, uh, the human genetic record. But I think, um, one thing can be sure this is certainly a mother and a father of a discovery right here. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. 
So one of the big issues uh, people often have with science fiction is various unrealistic aspects of how space is depicted. And there are plenty of factual errors to be found, even in the hardest of science fiction. A common objection is in space battles where there's fiery explosions which send out shockwaves and gigantic booming percussions. Pew, pew. Uh which is obviously impossible because uh, there's no atmosphere in space for the sound to travel through. Famously, in space, no one can hear TIE fighters scream. <laughs> true. Yeah. True that. Um, you but, know they that screaming sound? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I call them screaming I, H's. I, I, thought, I, thought they were, uh, <laughs> I do. Yeah. I thought that was the noise they could hear inside the TIE fighter. Oh. So it was like just rattling. Like, you know, they've got terrible OH&S in the Empire. That's for sure. Those, those yeah. helmets would not have much viewing kind of thing. If you're no. like flying and you've got these tiny little holes in your helmet, that's not really... There's, it's not conducive. There's, there's that famous scene where um, the stormtrooper runs into the... Into, <laughs> into, into the doorway. To the doorway. And smashes himself. Yeah. 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 And that, and nobody even, you know, goes to offer first filming. aid. No. So, <laughs> um, so, but that's in space itself. Obviously, there's no atmosphere in space. But mm. on planets, it's a different story. Uh, and many objects in our solar system have some kind of atmosphere, um, even though it might be quite thin, uh, for vibration to travel through and for sound to exist. Mm-hmm. So, in March 1982, the Russians... Uh, had one of their space exploration firsts. They had a lot of space exploration firsts, except the one that everyone paid most attention to, which was landing people on the moon first. So they just went, well, we're not going to do that anyway. We didn't, we didn't even care. We didn't want to do that. Um, so, but what they did do in 1982 uh, was land the Venera 13 on the surface of Venus. And Oh, wow. In 82. In 82, yeah. And for some reason... Um, apparently to measure the wind speed, they attached a microphone. I would have thought there would be better ways to measure, to wind, measure speed. wind speed than mm. attaching a microphone. Yeah. But this is this was their this was their uh, their theory, and they stuck with it. The microphone on board meant the Russian probe was able to record the first sounds in history on the surface of another planet. Um, obviously, there was sound recorded by astronauts when they went to the moon, but that's not technically a planet. So, mm. um, and also, it was them talking to each other. That's because right. Because there's that's no. Right. You know, it's like saying, oh, we recorded sound on another planet. Well, it was just you guys what, what saying does, you were recording sound on another planet. What does um, Neil Armstrong, can you tell us what does it sound like on the moon? just sounds like a bit of a buzz. <laughs> um, so so they, they, went up to, uh, they went up to Venus. They sent their probe to Venus and they recorded some sound. So if you want to um, listen in, I've got the sound here. Um, the very first sound recording of Venus. <laughs> Oh wait! Uh, sorry, I think I might have. I think I've put on the wrong. You did, yeah. Clip. No, no, no. This is what the Russians heard. This is definitely what the I think, Russians heard. I think heard. they might have been listening to this at the time, but no, no. This is this is a different different Venus. Sorry, I'll uh, I'll fade you down there, uh, shocking blue. No, no. Okay, we'll try that again. Uh, uh, what I have here is sound recorded from the actual surface of Venus by the Venera thirteen. Probe. A little less melodic. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Not even particularly rhythmic. <laughs> no. Um, you can see why this didn't get to number one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds a bit like wind. 
through. It does. I, yeah. At a speed of, I would say, approximately, I have no idea. Yeah, see, this is the thing. They put a microphone to measure the wind speed, and I think, well, okay. Yeah, but you you've got, yeah, how else do you measure it? Like, one of those spinny things? I don't think yeah, that would survive. Spinny things. That, an anemometer. I wouldn't survive on the surface of Venus, surely. Well, possibly the, the not. But, down. but, you know, you can build things that have mm. parts of the thing that come out ooh, after ooh, it's landed. What was that? I think there's, you know, the machinery itself is actually... <coughs> Falling apart? Well, no, just moving and things settling and okay. things like that. So some of those sounds are actually from the craft itself, not from the surface of Venus. But that's the that's first sound. That's what Venus sounds like. First sound from another planet. Ooh, what? It's, it's Whoa, scary on Venus. That's, that's it is. a bit scary. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you can listen to that. There's... Uh, oh. Yeah, I'll turn that oh, off now. Goodness. So that was that was sound recorded on the surface of Venus. It's very windy on the surface of Venus. Yeah, yeah. Um, but more recently, the Huygens probe was uh, dropped onto the surface of Titan, which is the largest moon of Saturn, and it recorded sounds of descent and on the surface, which I also have uh, some Ooh. sound from. From Titan. So we Great. can hear the sound from Titan and. You, Totally different sound. You ready? Yeah. Um, all right, we'll go from here. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. It, well, it's a lot deeper, isn't it? It's got it, a different. It's got a different timbre to yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it sounds almost like the ocean. Really windy ocean. Yep. So that's Titan. Obviously, completely different Very to different. to the surface mm. of oh, Venus. Oh, I think a little bit different. It is. It is a little bit different. It is. But it's also sounds very stormy. This would be a great secret sound, wouldn't it? Like, which planet are we on now? <laughs> part of that. Part of that is actually the um, the probe falling through yeah, the atmosphere yeah. as well. So that's not even down to the surface yet. Oh, there's there's right. further there's further sound from the surface as well. Titan isn't a planet. It's uh, about one and a half times the size of the moon, and it does have an atmosphere which uh, obscures the surface of Titan. So you can't actually see the surface of Titan, which is why they sent the Huygens ah, probe okay. to land on it, because we have never actually seen what mm-hmm. it looks like on the surface. And there's actually uh, liquid water on the surface of um, Titan. So you hear a splash when it <laughs> when it finally hits the bottom. <laughs> uh, but that's one of the that's one of the reasons where they sort of they've been looking around the solar system. If they think if there is any life, mm-hmm. there should be liquid water there. So they're looking on well, potentially looking on Titan uh, as well as other places, including Mars, mm. which is you know one of our closer neighbors, well, certainly a lot closer than Saturn. We do have uh, our most recent extraterrestrial recording comes from the surface of Mars. When NASA's InSight probe landed at the end of November uh, with a truckload of tools to measure different things. Including a microphone? It doesn't have a microphone. What? They didn't They didn't include a microphone. Well, they kind of went, what are we going to be recording? There's no sound up there. But what it does have is a very sensitive seismometer for measuring vibrations of the ground. I was going to say the Earth, but you can't say the Earth because it's on Mars, so it's not Earth, it's ground. Martian, um, Martian ground, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's supposed to be re- used to record Mars quakes uh, to get an idea of subsurface potential tectonic activity that might be going on uh, deep in the planet. But it's so sensitive, it could pick up vibrations from the probe's solar panels as they were buffeted by wind whipping across uh, the surface of Mars. Uh, and those vibrations have been turned into sounds by... They have slightly manipulated their recordings. Um, so they, they've sort of sped them up and 
raise the pitch so they're actually audible. But I can uh, I can play you um, the sound of Mars. Now I'll start playing it, and you probably won't be able to hear anything because this is the actual level of the recordings of their equipment from the Insight uh, lander. So we'll just listen. Are you ready? Yeah. It's actually playing right now. There's I mean, a vague thing. I don't know if it's my imagination. It, right, so the pitch it's is... pretty faint. Yeah, the pitch is very, very low. The sounds are almost sub-audible, but they are Ooh. Whoa. just audible. And Here now they've upped the pitch by two octaves, and you can actually okay. hear it it's because still very of the low. frequency. Yeah, it is very low. Oh, it sounds like we're underwater a little bit. And this is sped up by a factor of 100 so they've actually sped up the uh, sped up the sound, mm. so you can hear it much more clearly now. Right. So this is all manipulated. Yeah. Right. And if you play it backwards, do you? What does it sound like? Pretty much like inhaling, okay. <laughs> okay. like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the seismometer wasn't designed to do this. This is just one of the things, and they also combine it with um, data they were getting from the air pressure sensor that they had, so they could actually figure out what was going on. They sort of manipulate it so you could actually hear it. And if if you have big enough speakers, you can hear it before they've actually done anything. But they were looking at it on a monitor and seeing, oh yeah, there is actual vibrations there, and that's why they started listening into it to see if they could get anything out of it. So basically. According to all this data, the wind sounds like wind on other planets <laughs> and various moons, as long as there is an atmosphere to carry the sound and some way to record it. So I think if the wind blows on another planet and there's no one around here, it does make a sound, uh, as long as you've got a microphone there to record the sound. So I sometimes go to trivia, right? And, you know, um, generally... Do you clean up there? Or? I'll, I'm generally pretty good at it. I don't want to blow my own trumpet. but no, um, I, I also own a trumpet. Um, <laughs> sometimes though, I just can't remember the answer. You ever have this and, you know, even though like, I'm sure I know the answer and I'm sure I can even think of the letter it starts with. You yes. Bit by bit. Yeah, even sometimes the sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if you're lucky, by the end of the round, you remember it, but not always. Sometimes when you remember, though, it just kind of suddenly pops into your head. Like if you're doing something else, something goes, that's I it. I got it. Yeah. 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 This is called the tip of the tongue state, when something is on the tip yeah. of your tongue. Um, also sometimes called lethologica. Um, it's a kind of a fancy name for it. But the research papers that I found... Mostly call it tip of the tongue. So, so that's a term. Is it, is it lethargica as Le- in like le- lethargy? No, lethologica. Oh, lethologica. Letho. Don't get too hung up on lethologica because no okay, one calls it that. No one tongue. calls it that. Tip, tip of the, the tongue. tongue. Tip of the tongue. And it makes um, sense to call it that though because you know that you know it because you know you've said it out of your mouth before. So it kind of feels like you should just be able to 
Yeah. Say it again because yeah. you've said it before. There's another language, I can't remember which one they talk about sparkling on the end of your tongue. Um, I think people, uh, some people who, who speak uh, sign language talk about it being on the tip of the finger. Huh. Um, I think, uh, yeah, and there's other ones that are similar to that, like tip of something. Is how it fit, that's what it feels like. Um, look, it's not really... So I did some research to find out what's going on there, and it's not well understood, I've got to say. Like a lot of things in the brain, what's happening there is not... We're not totally sure, but there are some ideas. And it is fairly easy to study as a psychological phenomenon because you can induce tip-of-the-tongue states just by asking trivia questions. Uh, one example I liked in one of the things articles I read talked about, um, what do you call the sport of exploring caves? Spelunking. See, he knew it. You know, if you if you knew it, you shouldn't have said it. <laughs> ah, sorry. But so, it's like okay. Before before the show, we were talking. We were you know talking in the studio as we do, and we we're talking about um, smallpox vaccination and the old technique. And it took us a while to remember. Well, Stu had to. Look I had it to up. look it up. But you were you were nearly there. I was nearly there. Yeah. Um, so these things that you, where you know it, you're pretty sure you know it and you can know a bit of it. Um, and yeah, but you can't quite get it. Now, like I said, we know some things about it. One of the things we know is that it happens more often as you get older. Uh, I saw one thing saying when people are young, it can happen like once a week and older people can happen like once a day. They can have this experience. Um, we also know that caffeine makes it worse. There was a study that found that. Oh, yeah. Um, and there are a number of theories about how it works. Um, one that's very popular is known as the blocker theory. Now, this is a theory that what happens is you try and dig something out of out of your memory, um, but something else gets in the way. And it might be, it's often talk about being a word that sounds similar and you get the wrong answer in your head. And so you can't say the right answer because the wrong answer is there. And you need to get rid of that wrong answer before you can actually think of the right answer. And that frustration is what gives you that feeling at the tip of the tongue. Um, this is a popular theory. Uh, one study found back in 1983 found that 59% of tip of the tongue states involve some sort of blocker word. But 59% is not 100%. Uh, and there are other theories as well. Yeah, I mean, it's barely more than half, really. So half, a bit better than half the time that's the case. But then the rest of the time, what explains it? Yeah. yeah. Now, various other, one of the other main theories is something called, it's often called transmission deficit, and it's more about language processing, saying this is not a problem specific with memory, but, well, not with you know, memory in general, but specifically with the way we process language. And the idea is that we store different parts of language separately. So when you've got a word, for instance, the, the meaning of it or the semantic information is kind of separate to the sounds or the phonological information as they call it, call it. So the idea being that when you're trying to think of the word, you know, the meaning might come to you first and you've got to get all of it. You've got to get the, all the sounds before you actually say the word. Um, we're talking about things being on the tip of your tongue, etc., or on, or on the tip of your finger. Apparently, um, for some people who are some Chinese speakers or writers in particular, when they're trying to remember the, the symbol for a word, they talk about being on the tip of their pen because they might know the word, but they can't quite remember. Just know it as kind of on the tip of the pen, so it sort of relates to that language processing. So how do we figure out which theory is correct? Well, um, one of the things is to look at this idea of how the word comes to you after a period of time. And um, this is known in psychology as incubation. And I found a paper that studied the phenomenon of incubation in relation to the tip of the tongue states. And what they did is found, try to measure whether if you ask someone a question, they've got to the tip of the tongue state, and then you ask them again, 
um, if you did it straight away, so it made them kind of keep trying at it, whether that was more successful or whether you asked some other questions in the interim, gave us a bit of time, whether they were more successfully had some time to incubate. And they found it was more successful in the time to incubate. And they claimed that this was um, consistent with the blocker theory, that essentially what you're doing is forgetting the blocking word by being distracted, and so then the real word can come out. All sound good? That makes sense. There are like other explanations. experience Sorry. with that. There are other explanations, though, for that, what's going on there. Oh. And one is that you are getting other cues that are helping you fill in the missing word. Oh. Because what it seems is when you say you had to get all the bits of information to fill in the word, is that um, you, like, you say you know the meaning of it, and you know, say you might, like you said, you might know kind of roughly what it sounds like or how long it is, and the more bits you have, eventually you get enough information to to pull the word out of your memory. So this is, and essentially this is um, part of the language processing theory idea. And what this, um, some other researchers found, if you can give people words that sound similar to the word they're trying to get, then you give them a, a kind of a clue that will help them get it. So, for instance, particularly if you give them like the first syllable of the word. But so this is what experiment what they did was they they had people like they got them in the tip of the tongue state by giving them a hard word, and then they gave them a list of words. But some of the words in the list had the same syllable, so with the same syllable as the word they were mm. looking for. So you think about spelunking, they might have had something with the word like spell at the beginning, and they'd see the word spell even though it's completely separated, but that would something in their brain go, oh, I'm looking for something that starts mm -hmm. with a spell. Oh, and they would get the, the answer like that. Oh, right. Yeah. So it's kind of the similar similar word or the similar name because often happens with thinking of people's names as well. It acts like a hint that kind of gives you that kind of chip over the line. Um, yeah, so this is all kind of backed up by some fMRI scans, which um, show when you're in the tip of the tongue state, there's activity in the prefrontal cortex. It suggests that you know you're in the tip of the tongue state, you know you're looking for this word, but also that if there is a problem in the connections between the language processing area, like in with like decay of the grey matter in those key areas, that means you're more likely to get stuck with this, which kind of explains why it might happen to people more as they get older as well. Um, as well as the fact that people who are older know more words, and so there is kind of a bigger challenge of connecting the meaning to the sound of words because there simply are more words to juggle. Yeah, and I, I mean, I get it with, um, especially on the subject of trivia, I get it with people. Yeah. I'm getting it increasingly with people. I can't remember someone's name. I can see their face. I know what they do. I know what film they're in, and I just can't remember their name because there's so many more actors that I know of now and, and musicians that I know of now than I did when I was, you know, 15 kind of thing. So there's a lot more files to, to sort through before I can get the right one. Well, it's like, um, so there was one paper that I saw looking at that, and they had say an example was asking oh who is the the actor who was in mad about you and twister in as good as it gets etc like that helen yeah. hunt yeah and they gave them things like or was helen... it paul reiner <laughs> paul was he wasn't in twister Reisner. they gave they gave them clues like something about helen mirren and that would like go ah helen hunt because you get the word mm. helen there yeah that's kind of a clue yeah yeah. So it is. The, yeah. Basically, this is Jesse. That it is more about language processing rather than memory. And, um, and yeah, this all kind of fits together. The tip of the tongue feeling then is the theory. Then is not a bad thing to be in that state. It's basically an indication that you do know the answer. And you just have to kind of dig it out somehow. Um, one thing we can say though. Oh no, hang on. So something else I forgot. 
Um, doesn't mean that the blocker theory is totally incorrect, though, because there's this one study on this kind of this hinting technique found that it mostly worked best for people who are under the age of 75. And people who are over 75, if you gave them a word that was too similar or a name that was too similar, it would kind of get in the way and trick them up a bit. But, so, um, it, so it would actually block them? It would actually block right. them, yeah. So for older people, it can block it. But it was, however it works, one of the other um, things that comes out of this is if you want to get out of this tip of the tongue thing, um, you don't want to have this happen again with that same word, you need to actually find a way to have yourself recall it. So if you're trying to think of it and someone else just looks it up and tells you the answer, that doesn't help you remember it in future because you're bypassing the memory recall state. So what you need, you're better off having these hints that will cause you to actually remember it. That way you're reinforced remembering a part of your brain. You reinforce the memory connection and so, that will help you remember it better in future. So put away your phone, don't Google the answer. That's Get right. somebody else to Google the answer and then give you hints. Give you a hint, yeah. That's great. Yeah, and that way you hopefully will reinforce your memory of it and you'll be able to remember uh, it better in future. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.